Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we are positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join certified dog trainers as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. My name is Kayla Fratt, and I'm the owner of Journey Dog Training. Joining me today is Marissa Martino of Pause and Reward Training in Boulder, Colorado. Hey, guys. So today, Marissa and I are talking about continuing education and certification within the dog training world. This is a broad and sometimes contentious topic, but we're going to hope that it's going to be useful. So we're going to start by laying our chips on the table. Um, I'm a certified dog behavior consultant with the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants. I'm also a big old nerd when it comes to continuing education. I'm pretty much (laughs) always reading new books, taking Fancy Dog Sports Academy courses, and attending conferences whenever I can. Um, Marissa, what about you? So I went to the Academy for Dog Trainers back when it was on site at San Francisco SPCA, and then I was certified through CBDTKA, and I'm currently working on um, the certification that Kayla has through the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants. It is a bear. It's a long process, and and so I'm currently working on that. And more recently, I took Learning and Living with Animals, and we'll talk a little bit about that later when we talk about online programs. And then I think since... I'm an extrovert. The one of the best ways that I learn is by, you know, reading things and then talking it through with my colleagues. So, um, doing that at um, on the phone or doing that um, in person or doing that at conferences to me feels like the best way to cement my learning. So that's how I nerd out about dogs. Yeah, absolutely. So clearly, Marissa and I approve of continuing education and certifications, right? Um, So we're going to talk about these two things a little bit separately um, because continuing education does not equal certification and vice versa. Um, So Marissa, do you think that certifications matter for dog trainers? And if so, why? This can be a controversial topic. I think certifications matter because I think it's important to strive and to test your learning against some sort of criteria. However, I don't think certifications matter in the sense that that should be the one thing that you're striving for. So sometimes when we certify in an area of of expertise, we can sometimes get a little bit lazy about continuing education. And I know that I did that like many, many years ago. And I think that that's a really important message and and th- and something that folks should not necessarily lean on that just because you have a certification doesn't mean that you can't learn and expand and even question some of the things that you know that you got quote unquote certified on. So, you know, this is a field that is constantly evolving which is very very exciting. Science is always teaching us new things and potentially suggesting that things that we really knew are not necessarily true anymore. Mm-hmm. So, Continuing education, and I'm sure Kayla agrees with this, is, is I think, more important. Like if you're going to spend your time and your money constantly learning and growing through the, the various ways that we're going to share later in this podcast, I think that that's most important. It's not necessarily the letters behind your name or something like that. It is more how curious you are when you're showing up to the information that you're receiving, whether it's online, in person, or at a conference, or in a book. So Kayla, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think um, broadly, I agree. And I think, you know, the the one of the biggest cases that I will make for certification um, is almost a selfish one. I 
I don't know about you, Marissa, but I'm constantly getting emails or Facebook messages or texts from friends, family, friends of friends of family, <laughs> um, yeah. asking for dog training help um, or wanting to find um, a trainer near them. And I always start out with the find a consultant locators from different certification that's very groups. True. Um, yeah. That's that's how, because it's so much easier for me to go to IABC or KPA or, you know, what other, whatever other website and find a trainer through their locator than it is to Google dog trainer in city name and then spend a bunch of time reading through everyone's methodologies and continuing education. A lot of dog trainers have pretty crappy websites, so that makes it even harder. Um, yeah, that is so true. So true. Um, so, so true. Not Kayla and I, though. <laughs> not us. No, we have nice websites. Um, but um, I mean, and I think that alone is a decent reason to do a couple of these yeah. certification um, routes because it just makes you easier to find. I know I don't get all of my business from the IABC um, consultant locator, but I've gotten quite a bit. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I also get quite a bit just from Googling, but I'm also in a pretty small city. So there just aren't all that many competitors here in Missoula, Montana um, that I have to go head to head against. But if you're, you know, in Denver or something, um, yeah. it can really help you stand out a little bit. There's a lot of great trainers. Yeah. And with the, with the certification piece, I think it's really nice to know, like you, you had just mentioned something about philosophy, you know, so if I have, if I'm on the IAABC website, I can make an assumption and it's a pretty big assumption, right? That if I am sending someone to another trainer that I don't know, that they are falling within the Lima based guidelines, mm -hmm. but it still can be an assumption, right? Because it's not like everyone's getting an in-person examination where, um, you know, they're watching how and when we're engaging with the animal right. and what choices we're making. It's all still, uh, you know, written in, I'm, I'm sharing with you about my cases. Like that's the way that the certification happens. So no one's really seeing me in person train. And I think that that's why I'm, you know, putting a big asterisk next to that word assumption, because it's, you know, they should be operating within Lima and the humane hierarchy guidelines. However, they might not be. So, right. You know, it is, it's nice that with a certification, you have some sort of parameters or some sort of um, container that that person is supposed to be operating in right. and you can feel better about maybe sharing their information, so on and so forth. Exactly. And I think that also kind of ties into one of the other points I'll often make about certification is just, you know, not all certs are created equal, as we've already said. Um, mm -hmm. Some are pretty much a multiple choice exam. Um, I think the... Um, Certification Council for Professional Dog Trainers is basically a multiple choice exam. Um, yep. Others, you know, like KPA, you have to go through their program and then you pass an exam at the end of the program. Mm -hmm. um, so that can be quite rigorous. Um, then like the IABC is it's an exam with case studies and, you know, mm -hmm. it's not multiple choice. It's all long answer. Um, so I would say that makes it a little bit harder um, or a lot harder. I it took me months <laughs> um, to do. And then others, um, you know, like in order to be uh, listed on the APD2 website, you just have to join and, you know, I think sign a couple things saying that you um, adhere to certain training philosophies, maybe. 
I'm not even sure. Actually, I, the, neither one of us are APDP members, but um, you know, yeah. they also have a consultant locator on their site. But there's very, very little checking that goes into that particular um, site, so it's not one that mm-hmm. I tend to go to first. So you know, it, it's hard because everyone is there are so many different you know flavors of certified dog trainer, and if you're not super familiar with KPA versus CPDT versus CDT, you know whatever. I'm already losing track of the acronyms. Um, I know the acronyms are a the lot, acronyms are a lot. <laughs> a lot, and we live in this, you know. So if you're not if you're not really well versed in it, it's really hard for someone to know like, oh, uh, you know, a KPA is someone that I really want to be working with versus uh, an an XYZ is not a, a school that I really. Uh, I'm comfortable with. Yeah. And KBA is the Karen Pryor Academy, yeah. just in case anyone is like, wait, what? What acronym are we on right now? <laughs> and Kayla XYZ and is sure. <laughs> Yes. Kayla and I will make sure to link to all of these organizations, all of the continuing ed online and in-person conferences, like all of this will be in the show notes. So if you're a little bit lost, definitely head to our website and we will have all that information there. Yeah. And then, I mean, especially within, you know, switching gears a little bit over to continuing education, I think one of the biggest things for me with continuing education is if you're not learning from other people, either from, you know, we'll talk about different ways to do continuing education, but if you're not learning from other people, you're only learning from your own narrow experience. And that is just so inefficient. Um, You know, there are just some cases um, that you're just, even if you're taking on, you know, training 30 dogs a week, every single week for your whole life, you're just still not going to see all that many specific cases or specific breeds or whatever. Um, so making sure that you're learning from a lot of other people is just a really, really good way to broaden your horizons. Um, it's much, much more efficient. Um, as Marissa already said, science is always finding out new things, learning new things about dog training, dog behavior, the, you know, the gut brain communication uh, or connection, um, all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. So we have to stay on top of it because it's not like, oh, we've, you know, science has already understood dogs and dog training. So now we're done. Like, that's not the case at all. And then when you know better, you do better. Um, I'm constantly changing and modifying and going back to old books and then comparing that to what I'm reading in like a a scientific paper that came out this week or, you know, whatever it is and trying to figure out, um, different tools that I can just have in my toolbox. Cause there are definitely times where I take, because I have 16 different books. Okay. Actually not 16. I should say, uh, six or seven books on my shelf about reactivity. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, with each case, I can pull out a couple different approaches um, and figure out what's going to work better for an individual dog because I didn't just read one book on reactivity and say I'm done now. Um, And then I think the last thing that also is just really important, it's something that is very near and dear to my heart, is that dog training is about a lot more than learning theory. Um, I really love learning about genetics and physiology and epigenetics and hormones and you know, cat training, dolphin training, um, all of that can really, really help improve your skills. It's about so much more than just, you know, mark and reward training or whatever, you know, like really understanding as much as we can about the dogs as a species. And then also training across multiple different species can really help us improve. Yeah, that's awesome. I want to say, too, when you were talking about that you have a variety of books on reactivity and you want to learn new skills and new tools for each type of behavior concern, I think that's really, really important to stress because 
when you're a new trainer and a lot of new trainers had written into us to ask us to talk about this topic, but when you're a new trainer, as you're learning something new, you tend to lean on that particular tool for each case, <laughs> right? Like you get, you're like, okay, this is the house training protocol. This is the crate training protocol. And then you use it with many animals. And a lot of times that particular protocol works for many animals. And so mm -hmm. therefore your behavior gets reinforced, but when it doesn't work, then that's the moment that you check in just to make sure that you've done everything well. And then that might be the moment that you reach out and ask or read or check in to see if there are any other tools, because not all cases are going to be the same. And so even though the template worked for the last five animals, it doesn't mean it's going to work for the next two. So mm -hmm. make sure that um, you sort of create space to go beyond the template or the protocol that you're using, um, even though it has been has worked in the past. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Kayla? I think and I think the case study that we're hopefully going to be recording and it'll be coming up in a couple episodes after this um, is going to help illustrate that a little bit. Um, you know, I think we've all had the cases where, you know, most of my reactivity clients, if we pretty much teach the dog, um, hey, when you look at other dogs, you're going to get some food and we teach the handler, hey, when you see other dogs, you're going to help, you know, keep the leash loose and you're going to keep moving and you're going to cross the street. You know, for most of my clients, that's pretty much it. Um, yeah, pretty much works. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much does it. And then, you know, there are some dogs where that's not enough. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, it's really useful to have, um, you know, not just, you know, various books on your shelf or different um, approaches kind of in your in your mental toolkit, but also, you know, people in your network. And we're going to talk about different types of continuing education here after our um, our ad break, um, because, you know, there are times where I'm constantly calling Marissa and Ursa and they're sometimes calling me um, just being like, can I just chew over this case with you? And I think that's also really important. Um, sometimes dog trainers, um, we're not always the most socially savvy bunch, um, but I think it's really important to lean on each other and not just use the books or the, the things in our own head as well, um, because we really need um, we need to be relying on each other as much as possible with some of these tough mm -hmm. cases. Um, so with that, let's take a moment to hear a word from our sponsors. And when we get back, we're going to talk about different types of continuing education and the pros and cons of each one. Training your dog yourself can be a challenge and searching online for guidance can be overwhelming. There is so much information out there. That's why we at Canis Major Dog Training put together our online training course. You get short, easy to follow videos on everything from basic training to behavior modification to puppy socialization. We've got over 20 videos up right now with more being added weekly. Starting at $5 a month, it's a great value and an easy, economical way to get the ball rolling on better behavior. All our videos are created and produced by professional trainers, so you know you're getting the best, most modern, and effective techniques. And by joining our higher tiers, you have access to community and trainer support, as well as input on what topics we cover in the future. Check it out and subscribe today at patreon.com slash Training. We can't wait to see you there. 
Okay, so we're back. And like Kayla mentioned, we're going to talk about the different types of continuing education and the pros and cons of each one. So Kayla, do you want to get us started? Sure. So I think first up, we're going to talk a little bit about in-person mentoring and your local community. Um, So this can mean anything from shadowing a single trainer near you to attending um, meetups that are catered towards dog trainers in your area, towards potentially finding an online community that really speaks to you. Um, and, you know, those are all a little bit different. So we'll talk about the the three of them a little bit separated out. Um, I got my start um, shadowing people. Um, I got, well, a combination of shadowing people and volunteering at a rescue. Um, but I actually know Ursa, one of our other co-hosts, because um, I found her business card at the climbing gym that I used to climb at. And uh, called them up and asked if I could shadow them. <laughs> and um, she and her business partner, Kim, let me do it. Um, and it was an amazing experience for me. I mean, I learned so much. They did a really, really good job of letting me kind of see one, see one type of case, do one while they followed me doing the, you know, the same, so to say dog, dog reactivity. You know, I watched them handle a case over the course of six weeks. And then I took on a case where they watched me. And then, you know, eventually they handed me off and had me doing it all on my own. Um, they were awesome instructors. It was really good hands-on work. Um, I was able to watch them do stuff and then on the drive away from the clients, ask them a bunch of questions. They were able to watch me do stuff and give me feedback. Um, but on the other, on the other flip side, I, before I found them had had, um, a not so great experience shadowing a different trainer, um, who was very impatient with me and just not a great instructor. She was a great trainer. Um, so one of the big cons of shadowing people in particular is it relies on finding someone really good nearby, um, which might not be the case in smaller communities. Um, it can be hard to schedule, um, and not all great trainers are great instructors. Um, so then transitioning over to the community, um, you know, in Colorado, Marissa and Ursa and I were all members of the Colorado Dog Trainers Network. I am no longer a part of it. I don't know if you guys have kept up your membership, but this was a group. Yeah, I'm still part of yeah, it. Yeah, that's awesome. This was a really, really fabulous group, um, I think led by Sue Brown from The Light of Dog, um, just south of uh, Denver. And mm-hmm. they would get, we'd get together uh, about once a quarter and have these meetings. Mm-hmm. There's a private Facebook group. Um, and it's just an incredible resource for helping people connect with each other all around Colorado. So if you had a client who was moving or you, you got an inquiry from someone who was out of your service area, and then also just kind of picking each other's brains about stuff. And it was a really nice closed community um, that was both online and in person. Um, and then, yeah. you know, there's online communities. Um, they can be kind of hit and miss like many things on the internet. Um, but if you can find a good Facebook group or Reddit thread or whatever that really works for you and really speaks to you. Um, they can be incredibly supportive places and it's not geographically low, um, specified, I guess that's not the right word. It, uh, restrictive, geographically, not restrictive. geographically restricted. Thank you, Marissa. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you can have input from a trainer who has been living in Japan for the last 12 years and has a ton of experience with Shibas and Akitas. Um, so when you get the weird Akita case coming through, you can actually talk to someone, um, who's got <laughs> experience with the breed. An Akita <laughs> case would be weird. <laughs> no, no reason. <laughs> no reason. <laughs> um, so Marissa, do you have anything to add about in-person mentoring and community, um, Continuing, Ed? 
Just that I've had the very same experience as Kayla and I shadowed uh, trainers back in New York City when I lived there many, many years ago and found really, really good people that were willing to support me. Um, And I think that that's such a great way to get that hands on experience and get live experience because it's. Um, you're actually in classrooms or you're, you're assisting in private training sessions and you're, you're actually seeing what this career could look like. And I think that that's a great opportunity to explore. But again, like Kayla mentioned, it does really rely on finding somebody good that is nearby to you. And sometimes that is just not the case. So just something to consider. Um, and yeah, the Colorado dog training network, I have met a lot of great friends through that. And, um, then I personally contact them individually and talk about cases instead of talking about cases online, just because for me, I need to talk it out. Like that feels very resonant to me that I want to share the cases and I want to go back and forth. And sometimes online platforms are the best place for me personally, but it might be for other people. And so understanding this about yourself is going to help you determine where you're going to spend your time and how you're going to build your community. Yeah, definitely. So um, next, let's talk a little bit about books. Marissa, what do you have to say about books for continuing education? (laughs) This is so bad. (laughs) What I have to say about books is that I, I'm not the way in which I gain new information is I need to talk it out with somebody. Mm-hmm. I need to, so we need a book club. Um, I, yeah, I totally, you're right. I totally need a book club that needs to happen actually. And we should create a book club. I've been, that would be so fun. A canine conversations book club. Ooh, maybe we should do that. Ooh, we got to put a pin in that. It, it, um, but then we, but, then I need to commit to being somewhere at a specific time on a specific date. And that's yeah. really hard for me. That is hard. Yeah. Um, but I think, um, yeah, I need some accountability. It was funny. I was just at a women's retreat last weekend and my friend, she reads so much and i and it's, I've never been a reader and I, I was like, gosh, I really want to be well read like you. And she's like, listen, join the library because you have deadlines. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, that is such a brilliant idea. But, um, I, I read as much as I can, which is not a ton. So that's not my, that's not my number one way of gathering information. But when I read, I traditionally always then process it out loud with somebody else. Like, so I read this in this paper, I'm having a hard time understanding this. What did you think? Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's the best way for me to actually have it like cement in my system. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that you read a lot on the flip side. So yeah. You want to share the pros of reading? Yeah. I mean, I think my favorite thing about books is that they're... Reading rainbow. Seriously. Uh, (laughs) I mean... What are the pros of reading, Kayla? Yeah. I mean, if you like look around my apartment right now, I have um, The Eye of the Trainer, Ken Ramirez's new book. I have Behave, The Science of What We Do, or why... It's something by Dr. Robert Sapolsky, who's a neuroendocrinologist. And it's about humans, but it's super useful for dogs. Uh, and I have two, the, both of those books sitting open, um, within eyesight of me. I'm, uh, I'm constantly reading. And part of what I really love about books is that they're cheap and accessible and portable. Um, I can always just get another book usually for under 20 bucks, maybe under 25 if I'm getting a fancy one. Um, yeah. <laughs> And I can bring them with me. I don't have to um, make time to communicate with someone else. I can read them on an airplane. Um, I can do it at 11 o'clock when I'm having a hard time sleeping. It's just a really, really um, – it works very well for me. Um, 
But then on the flip side, um, you can be book smart with low skills. And I know I was probably six years ago. I had read all of those reactivity books that I already mentioned, you know, those six different reactivity books. I read all of those by 2015-ish. Um, and I had not yet worked with a single reactivity case. But you were prepared. I was prepared, I thought, but did I know how to hold a leash? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, was seriously. I skilled at handing treats? Did I, you know, did yeah. I actually really know how to read body language in real time? No. Um, yeah. And I got there thanks to the fact that I did a variety of these different continuing education options. But you can be book smart with low skills and you really need to get out there and practice. Um yeah. And I think it's really easy to be like, well, I read all these books, so I know all the things. And I'm definitely someone who um, has that tendency. Um, but that's not always true. Um, and then, yeah. you know, just like many of the other things that we're talking about today, not all books are created equal. I was in our local bookstore yesterday picking up um, a birdwatching field guide. And I kind of glanced over because that was near, um, you know, the pets and homesteading sort of area of the bookstore. And um all of the books that they had up, um, you know, with their covers facing out instead of like their spines facing out were from Monks of New Skeet and Caesar Milan. Yay. Um, those <laughs> of you guys who are familiar with them um, and then familiar with us are going to understand that I was not super thrilled about that. Um, they're no. very old school, really, I want to swear, crappy, uh, you know, just uh, irresponsible trainers. <laughs> <laughs> that I just, yeah. I just hate. I hate it. And I hate that they're still what's so popular. And the same thing happens on Amazon. You know, Amazon will say, based on your buying history, you know, why haven't you read The Art of Raising Your Puppy by Monks of New Skeet yet? Um, You're like, because I'm, I'm, I'm smart enough to yeah, know yeah, exactly. that I'm not going to read that book. <laughs> but, it, but it's so, it would be so easy to be like, oh my gosh, I think I, re I, I really like dogs. I think I want to be a dog trainer. I'm going to go to the local bookstore. I'm going to pick up a bunch of books. I'm going to read, you know, while I'm w trying to figure out how to get into a course or shadow someone or whatever. And it would be perfectly reasonable to pick up those four books. And, and that's, you know, you'd probably still learn something, you know, um, but not all books are created equal, I think, is, is yeah. the bottom line here. And unfortunately, a lot of the best marketers as far as books and a lot of the popular books that have been around for a long time, um, the science and training methodology has moved far beyond where they are. Um, and I'm sure that's still that's honestly still true in positive reinforcement as well. If you read some of the books that were published in the mid 90s within the positive reinforcement world, we've moved past some of that stuff, you know, mm -hmm. Um so, you know, absolutely. Yeah. That was a little bit of a rant about so, my specific. So local did you bookstore. wind up hiding the books? Did you wind up like turning the books? Over? <laughs> like, I thought about it. Um, so if, if for those of you guys, um, this is probably going to be coming out while we're still going through coronavirus. Um, it is March 21st right now, I think 21st. I, I'm not wearing my watch. Uh, <laughs> and 21st or 22nd, 22nd, 22nd. <laughs> Um, so I Days bleed into the next, <laughs> I had the thought of like, Ooh, maybe I'll go like swap them around a little bit. And then I was like, I don't really want to touch all these extra books. And then I was like, maybe I'll go talk to them about it. And I was just like, no one wants to be spending a bunch of time talking about this right now. So maybe I'll go back later on and, you know, give them some suggestions for other books to, um, highlight instead. But, um, yeah, coronavirus, that would be very responsible of you. That would be amazing. Oh, I'm thinking about it, but yeah. So that was a long tangent about books, but I think the bottom line with books is they're a really, really great place to get started if you pick the right books. Um, Journey Dog Training has an article on the 72 
best dog training books we think are out there. Um, we will link to that um, with 72 oh, books. that's awesome. I didn't know that you had that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My Erin, uh, who um, is going to be on the podcast either shortly before or shortly after this, uh, actually wrote it for us. Um, that's great. You know, and it's everything There's from a- different books on separation anxiety to puppy raising to general dog behavior. Um, so we'll link to that. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't know where to start with books, uh, start with some of the ones on that list. Yeah. And then... I can't remember. Is it Companion Psychology? What is that website that is so amazing that we'll also link to? Companion Animal Psychology, I think. Yes. Yeah. She also has a really great list of books. And then going to give a shout out to Keem C. and Mara Velez of Humane Dog Training Advocates in Oakland. They also have a great list as well. So we can put those three up there. Perfect. Okay. Well, let's move on to the next one. So online classes. So I know that you have taken several online classes. I have. I recently, I took one in 2019. I took uh, living and learning with Dr. Susan Friedman. If you can choose one, that is the one to do. Just, I mean, I think think that that might be a fair statement. Um, It's really, I haven't taken it. It's so weird because you're like, um, my good friend, Allison and I uh, at the Boulder Humane Society, we've been in this industry for a long time and we took that course more recently and we were like, how did that still blow our minds? Like wide open. (laughs) It was so good. But I know that you have taken some through IAABC and through Fenzi. So you want to share your experience with those two? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, the only IABC class that I've taken is I took, um, remote behavior consulting, um, which was part of how that got me started doing Mm. a lot of my online um, behavior consulting. That class was fabulous. Um, really, really useful for what I do now. Um, IABC also has a really great principles and practice course, which is basically Mm -hmm. meant to be a pretty all encompassing introduction to behavior consulting, um, course. Uh, it's quite expensive, but I've heard it's very, very good. I have not taken it. Um, I've also taken a couple classes from Michael Shikashio. Um, he had a huge aggression master course that ran, uh, I believe last fall that I did. That was really, really good. Um, he is kind of one of the, the big positive reinforcement aggression trainers out there. Um, and that, yeah, that class was really, really good. And then I've taken quite a few courses with the Fenzy Dog Sports Academy. They also have a spinoff school now called the Fenzy Pet Professionals um, Academy group um where they're they're teaching classes so traditionally Fenzy Dog Sports Academy is focused on um dog sports so you know mm-hmm. obedience and agility and uh disc dog rally, rally. nose work exactly yeah, yeah they've got a lot of really on and cool on and stuff on. they've got and then mm-hmm. they've been adding more and more like behavior cases mm-hmm. or um you know, cooperative care or yeah. fitness or massage and then now the pet professionals um Academy is offering things like, you know, teaching your clients how to do stuff. So it's much more directed at people who teach other people. Um, I really like most Fenzy classes. I find mm-hmm. um, like many online cl- schools or many online classes, you kind of get out of them what you put into them. Uh and they offer classes at three different levels. So you can take them at the bronze level, which is basically an auditing spot. You're just reading and you can follow along with what gold level students are doing. Um, but you don't get to ask the instructor any questions. You don't get to post any videos. Um, I really like those. I'm currently taking one right now, again, because it's, um, you know, the apocalypse. So I'm taking one called Agility in the House. <laughs> um, 
that is indoor agility skills that you can do in a really small space. So I'm doing that class right now. Um, I took a really cool nose work games class a while back um, that I would highly recommend to anyone who's interested in nose work. Um, So yeah, at the bronze level, you're basically just reading and following along. At the silver level, you can ask questions um, that are pertinent to all dogs, like clarifying questions, but you can't ask questions that are specific to your dog. And then mm-hmm. at the gold level, you get your own thread within the, and this all makes sense kind of once you're in the platform, but you get your own kind of thread of questions and you can upload videos and the instructor gives you a bunch of personalized feedback with your dog. So I've taken things at both bronze and gold levels and um, definitely have gotten more out of the classes that I took at the gold level. Mm-hmm. Um because of the, because there's more accountability. Yeah. And, you know, there are just times where, you know, I'll post a video of something and I'll be like, I don't know why this isn't working. <laughs> um, yeah. And the instructor is going to be able to help me versus with the bronze. Um, I took a uh, my first Fenzy Dog Sports Academy class was their team obedience, which is kind of an online obedience um, title that they offer. Um And maybe because it was my first ever obedience class, maybe because it was my first ever online class, maybe because I took it at bronze, probably a combination of all three. I really didn't feel like I got all that much out of it and was very like frustrated and lost through a lot of it. And Mm -hmm. I have a feeling that if I had taken it at the gold level um, or if I had a stronger background in competitive obedience or if I knew how to take online classes back then, I probably would have done a much better job at it Um, because since then I've had a really good experience with their classes. Yeah, because I think that's the only, you know, there's several cons in there. If, if like, for me, I learn best, like I keep saying, when I'm like talking to somebody, engaging with somebody, and I'm having an experience. That's just the best way that I learn. And maybe that's not the best way I learn. It's like the most comfortable I am with my, with that particular learning style. Um, whereas an online class, like Kayla said it perfectly, you get, what you put into it. And so sometimes I've sort of fumbled through an online class. I think the living and learning with animals with Dr. Susan Friedman, I think they have done a really wonderful job pairing you up with, um, some sort of mentor that, you know, you're, you're sending in your homework directly to that person. You're going back and forth through several rounds to, to get your answer to where they'd like it to be. So they're shaping your response in this really positive way. They do, they model that behavior that we're doing with our canines and we're doing with our clients. They model that behavior with us as a learner really beautifully. Um, and so having that, having that structure was really, really good for me because again, I'm, I'm needing that input from others to sort of shape my learning process. So, um, yeah, so just, just things to consider when you are going to join some online classes. Um, it depends on, on your style and the, the time you have and the content, like Kayla said, is it brand new content or is it just a refresher? And is, is this the best way to learn that content? Yeah. And I, I agree. I think I've found like my nose work class was really, really awesome because it was at kind of a higher level and it was a lot of just like, Oh, here's a new puzzle that you guys can do. But I wasn't necessarily unsure how to do it. I just hadn't thought of it that way before. Mm-hmm. Um, like you already had a back, you already had a foundation yeah. of nose work before you took the class. And I have yeah. a feeling again, like that team obedience class, if I had ever done any obedience or like teaching a dog to pivot on a perch um, or teaching a dog to heal, any of those things, like if I had done that before, I probably would have been much less lost. Um, and now that I've taken a couple gold classes, I've been able to go back and take some bronze classes at Fenzy and 
that much more successful because I'm just kind mm -hmm. of learning how to take online classes. Um, so as far as pros go, let's just summarize a little bit. They're super accessible. Um, yeah. A lot of them are really, really affordable. Not all of them. Um, you know, the IABC principles and practice course is not cheap, um, but they, they tend to be pretty cheap that you can do them anywhere. You've got an internet connection. You can do them in your PJs. You get to build an online network. I love the Fenzy um, graduate alumni page. Um, they've got a Facebook group and I, I love it. Um, it's a really positive group of people. Denise Fenzy just like deserves. Yeah. She's done an amazing job of building a really cool community. Um, and then on the cons, you have to be a bit tech savvy. Um, you need to have a stable internet connection. Um, a lot of times you're required or at least strongly recommended to film things, um, which, you know, means getting a tripod and blah, blah, blah. And then you also have to be vulnerable with people watching video. Um, yeah. Some people find it much more comfortable to have video that people watch than to have people watch you live and other people feel the other way around. So you'll find out which one is you fall in, which category you fall into. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I, I'm quality varies. I, none of the classes that we've mentioned, um, are anything that I would not recommend, but I'm sure there are classes, classes out there that, are either cheap or very expensive potentially that just don't give you the same amount of learning. So yeah. Um, yeah. Quality, quality may vary. Yeah. And I think that's, that's to be said about all these things, right? Like we're, we've just, we've talked about some online classes that we have experience with, we're going to talk about programs and conferences next. Right. So there's way more options than what we're saying on this podcast. We are just wanting to talk about the ones that we have direct experience with because that, that feels the best to us. That feels really authentic. Yeah. So yeah, we've been lucky to not take one. any classes that we hate. What'd you say? We've been lucky enough to not take any classes that we hate. That's true. We're not just not telling you about the bad ones. It's because we, yeah, at yeah, least I can say I genuinely haven't taken any that I would say like, Ooh, yeah, stay away from that. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. I've been lucky. Money well spent. Yeah. Um, so our next one is, um, schools and programs. Mm -hmm. So we get a lot of questions from other trainers. Like, do I have to do a formal program? Um, I, I mean, I did a formal program back in 2007 because it was just the easiest way for me to, it, it Well, it felt like the easiest way for me to switch careers. I was working for Martha Stewart Living, which when people hear that, they're like, what? I was in a design job in New York City. That's what I went to college for. And I met this lovely woman, Julie, and she told me about the Academy for Dog Trainers in San Francisco. And I called my dad and said, I'm going to move to San Francisco. And he nearly had a heart attack. But uh, a year and a half later, after I shadowed those individual trainers, shout out to Ricky Brogard in New York City. I then made the leap and went to the San Francisco SPCA and did the Academy for Dog Trainers with Gene Donaldson and Janice Bradley uh, on site at that time. It was like the best six weeks of my life. And for me, it just felt like that was the formal way for me to gain information. It was experiential. It was on site. I got to move to San Francisco. I mean, who doesn't want that when they're young? When they're young? <laughs> um, and it just felt right for me. There are some people that don't do programs, right? They don't do formal, you know, six week, you know, 10 month, whatever programs. And they just make sure that they immerse themselves in as much continuing education online in person as possible. So, mm -hmm. um, 
we're not for or against them. I think we, you know, we really, really love the Academy for Dog Trainers. We love the Karen Pryor uh, Clicker Training Academy. So those are some programs that we know either graduates from or we've taken them ourselves. But it's we're not saying that you have to do a program. We think it's really important that you figure out how to get the education in a consistent way, the best way for you. So Definitely. some of the pros are for these programs, they're, they're comprehensive learning. So they're sort of walking you through a journey so that you're understanding um, everything from the beginning to the end. And it's just like, you know, I had mentioned, which is what felt right to me at the time. It's just a great way to kickstart your career. Mm -hmm. um, that felt very good to me because I was switching from design to dog training and animal sheltering. Um, some obvious cons can be that they're expensive. Like these are not, and it's amazing watching them increase in price throughout the years. Um, they are time consuming and you know, the, the Academy was in person and now it's online and you have to send in some videos. And so I know that, that the program has gotten really robust and some of my uh, colleagues are in the online version and, you know, Jean's done a really good job of staying up, up to date with all of the science and, you know, really made this program very robust in comparison to when I took it in 2007. I do love the idea of the Karen Pryor Training Academy because you have, you have these in-person touch points that I love. And again, I've made it really clear on this podcast that I need the in-person experiential. Mm -hmm. And so um, if I were to do it now, I wonder if I would do the Karen Pryor Academy just because that feels more resonant with my learning style. So anything to add to that, Kayla? Um, not really. I haven't done any of these full on schools and programs. I looked at them um, when I first was thinking that, OK, dog training might be a thing I want to do. And I kind of ran into the I was still an undergraduate um, and I, you know, I didn't I was a student paying for college. Like I didn't have the money to take on another yeah. set of school. Um, yeah. And there wasn't like a summer program that would have really worked. They're not made to fit within like a college um, schedule at all. Um, so it's yeah. not like there's, it would, it, I might've been able to do one if there was one that ran June through August. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I don't think I could have afforded one. And um, yeah, so I, I think I did kind of more of like that long, slow transition where I was shadowing people and volunteering at a rescue because I could do a couple hours a week. Um, mm -hmm. but I couldn't afford to do something more full on. I didn't want to drop any of my other classes. I didn't really necessarily think that I, I wasn't sure that I wanted to be a dog trainer instead of a biologist. So it wouldn't have made sense to take all my money from my biology degree and put it towards dog training instead. Um, yeah. and then the last most important thing, I was really looking at the Karen Pryor Academy. That was the one that people that I talked to that I respected were telling me to look at, um, for my my uh, skill level at the time and Karen Pryor Academy requires that you have a dog. Um, and I did not have a dog. Um, I didn't get a dog until several years, years after I graduated college. And to be honest, by the time I did have a dog, um, I still, I'm sure that even if I took a the Karen Pryor Academy trainer certification course now, I'm sure I would get quite a bit out of it. Um, but at the period of time where I was probably best suited for that program. I didn't have a dog and you need a dog to do it. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't do one. I, I do think it's probably the faster way. Like if you know that you want to transition like Marissa did into dog training and you have the time and money, it's probably much smarter to go into one of these programs and spend six weeks or whatever, just doing it versus doing what I did, which where I spent probably three years between like starting to be really interested in dog training to the point where I was actually ready to do it full time because I just was kind of chipping away at that education slowly in the evenings and weekends. Yeah. And I think that that is really more like a lot of the volunteers at dumb friends league. There are a lot of them that have been really immersed in our behavior modification program. And a lot of them are like, Oh wow, I, I really like this. That tends to be more the journey that I hear. It's not just like this all of a sudden shift, like tomorrow, I'm going to be a dog trainer. So therefore I'm going to do this program. It does seem more gradual for a lot of people. They like get, they, they either get uh, a dog that is really challenging and then they are like, Oh wow, this is a really interesting industry or this is so fun. And I'm learning about this and I've seen the progress with my dog and it's, it's more of this gradual process. Um, and, and so I think your story probably will resonate with a lot of people because it's not like tomorrow they're waking up and changing careers, right? Right. Um, it's like this sort of gradual thing where they're trying it on and then they're like, oh, wow, I really want to wear this, right? I'm not, I don't want to just try it on once. Yeah, definitely. So, so one of the other big ways to do continuing education is through conferences. So some of mm-hmm. our favorites that, um, you know, we wanted to list here are IABC, International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants, Clicker Expo, um, the Art and Science of Animal Training, which used to be ORCA, um, the Organization for Reinforcement Contingen- Contingencies with Animals. You can see why they changed their name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Shelter Playgroup Alliance, uh, FDSA Camps, the Fenzie Dog Sports Academy Camp, um, and the Canine Science Symposium. So we haven't been to all of these, um, but I'm hoping to go to the Canine Science Symposium in the future. I've been to Clicker Expo and IABC. I will be attending the Lemonade Conference this May, which is the IABC FDSA combination online conference because of, you know, the apocalypse. Um, and Marissa, I assume you've been to Shelter Playgroup Reliance. Have you been to Art and Science of Animal Training as well? Uh, I have not been to the Art and Science of Animal Training yet. I've been to IAABC, Clicker Expo, Shelter Playgroup Alliance, because um, I am on the board of that organization. And then uh, Canine Science Symposium. That was a really awesome conference. There are so many conferences that we did not name here, and we will link to articles that um, promote like the top 10 training conferences for dog trainers or whatever. I mean, there's, there's a ton of conferences here. Like if you're in the animal sheltering world, there's, we did not talk about really sheltering conferences with the exception of shelter playgroup Alliance. Um, so we can also link to some of those as well, like the humane society of the United States. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of continuing education out there. So, Kayla, walk us through some of the pros and cons of this. Yeah. uh, One more thing I wanted to add before I go into that is um, we're also probably even in our show notes not going to list all the conferences out there. So just know that if you're really interested in search and rescue or Mm, aggression or like a niche thing, um, odds are there's a conference for that niche thing um, or uh, seminars or something like that. Um, I know – 
I know of several that are, yeah, kind of surprisingly niche. Um, so it kind of depends, you know, if you're really hoping to just kind of get dip your toes in, then one of the ones that we've already named is probably the way to go. Um, but if you know mm-hmm. that you're already a professional trainer, you really want to learn more about search and rescue. Like there's a, there's probably a search and rescue conference you could go to. Um, some of the pros are it's an amazing learning opportunity. I was absolutely flabbergasted at Clicker Expo how many just incredible trainers were in the room at the same time. And I could go from learning from Shirag Patel to Ken Ramirez to Hannah Brannigan to Ava and Emily, you know, and back and forth and back and forth. And I didn't even name half of the other trainers that were there. You know, it was like a, a, a parade of the authors of all of my favorite dog training books. And you just can't. a parade of the authors. I love that. <laughs> you just couldn't get that any, you know, you only get that I at know. conferences. Um, networking is amazing. You know, we were up until midnight, almost every night having a couple cocktails and just networking with other people. You can change it up every year. Um, they're, yeah, they're really awesome. I love conferences. The cons are, um, they're not always awesome for newbies. You know, if you're pretty green into, in the dog training world, a conference might be too much. You know, it probably depends from conference to conference, but I know I went to the IABC conference when I was still in college, um, and was just starting to think about taking on behavior cases and it was pretty far over my head. Um, they're also really expensive. Um, you know, not just the cost of the conference, but you have to get a hotel, you have to get food, you have to get there. They're mm-hmm. time consuming. A lot of them are not just Saturday and Sunday. They're, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, which means you're probably traveling on Wednesday and Monday. Um, they're probably not in your hometown unless you're lucky enough to be in the right city for the right year. Um, and I doubt that there will ever be one coming to Missoula, Montana. <laughs> um, if you guys are in <laughs> Seattle, you're really lucky. Um, and you could only really go to a couple a year. Um, and like, I know this year, uh, which again, because of the apocalypse matters a little bit less, but, um, the pen vet working dog conference and the IABC conference were going to be the same weekend. Um, so I was not going to be able to go to both. And then the FDSA con, uh, camp was, I think the week after or the week before it was like right around the same time. So even though they weren't technically at the exact same time, there was no way I was going to make it to any, all three of them. And I was just going to Mm -hmm. go to one of them. Um, And then actually I'm going to make it to all three because they've now all moved online. (laughs) Um, But. Ooh, the pen vet is online. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I, I, I've been wanting to go to that. Not because I do anything with that. I'm just super, it's super cool. Yeah. That. And the pen vet working, uh, center is just so cool. Yeah, it's, um, my sister used to volunteer there. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, really cool. So yeah, you know, conferences, as you can tell, we really like them, but they also, they're just exhausting. You know, Marissa and I are both extroverts, um, who like networking and like being around people and like being in person. Um, They can take a lot out of the tank, though, even for us and especially for people who have a hard time being, you know, if the idea of networking sounds horrifying instead of exciting, (laughs) conferences are they can be hard for for you. Yeah, I mean, Clicker Expo this year, Kayla and I were able to go together at uh, in Seattle and we were exhausted. And like the the first thing I said was like. If I'm exhausted and I'm like a 98% extrovert, I can't even imagine what is happening for our, our poor our introverted introverts friends. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're all laughing at us um, now that we're in quarantine. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, um, looking sadly out the window. Like, <laughs> like people. somebody please come talk to me. Um, we didn't list on here, which actually could help with some of the cons. 
of it, of conferences being overwhelming for newbies, we didn't list seminars, yeah. right? So just like weekend long seminars mm-hmm. where you like, you, you choose your favorite author. That's actually what I did before I went to a conference is I found Gene Donaldson was presenting in New Jersey. And, uh, I, I think she was like, she's my first in-person two day seminar. And it was just like easy to absorb the information. I mean, it was very overwhelming still, right? Because you've got eight hour day and eight hour day, but it wasn't com- like, uh, you know, conference. I didn't travel. I, you know, I, I don't have to pick from, from different tracks. Mm-hmm. Like it was just really specific information. And so that might be helpful for folks to, again, just dip their toe in. Cause sometimes that price point is more doable. It's like mm-hmm. 195 or 225 or something like that. So yeah, that is another option. Yeah, I would agree. And I know, um, yeah, sometimes those seminars are hard to find, but I know I went to the, uh, there was a Fenzy Dog Sports Academy mini camp that I was in Colorado for um, this last fall, um, you know, and it was just yeah. much more affordable and and there are just more seminars. So generally, if you're in a large-ish city, um, you're going to be able to find a seminar maybe once a month um, and depending on, you know, budget and whatever, um, that still might not be feasible to go to one a month, but there are just going to be a whole lot more options, you know, to go to like a tag teach seminar or um, an aggression in dogs handling workshop or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and yeah, it, there might, that might be a lot more accessible for you. Yeah. I love seminars. Um, it gets me to feel like I'm learning, um, much more often, which I like. Yep. So then finally shelter and rescue, um, as our longtime listeners know, Marissa and Ursa and I are all big, um, shelter rescue lovers. Um, and what we mean when we say shelter and rescue is that you can get a job or start volunteering at a shelter or rescue as a really great way to get hands-on experience. Um, I know I did this at Allbreed Rescue and Training. I um, volunteered to help with their puppy class and their obedience class and then also helping to walk and exercise some of their behavior cases that were in their kind of foster program. Um, and then, you know, I did get the job at Denver Dumb Friends League, which absolutely skyrocketed me in experience level so quickly. Um, so the pros are you get amazing hands-on experience. You're just working with so many dogs so quickly. I just, I remember so clearly, you know, maybe six or eight months into my time at the shelter, the first time that I was working with, you know, I was just working with a lot of dogs and kind of like looked up at some point being like, there is no way I would take this dog on at this point in my career if someone was paying me to do it in their home. But mm-hmm. But I have the skills to do it here in the shelter, and I was doing a good job with it. Um, but I would not. It, it, I, you work with a lot of cases if you're in the behavior team in a largest shelter that you just you wouldn't necessarily. You at least I would have referred those cases out at that point. Yeah. But instead, I got to learn from them. That's um, a really good point. You also get to just focus on the dog training, at least in most shelters, for a while um, before Mm -hmm. you start adding in the human aspect. So that was really useful for me. I spent a couple years just training the dogs. And then I started transitioning to teaching the people how to train their dogs. But that just kind of makes more sense. It's it's so much easier to teach people how to train their dogs once you've gotten really good at it. And working in a shelter or rescue really helps you get good at it. There's also a lot of problem solving time and um, resources are often short in the shelter environment, um, which is 
obviously also potentially a huge con, but it also really helps teach you how to do kind of fast and dirty, good enough training, get creative, do the problem solving. I really enjoyed that. I really am someone who prefers to, um, you know, not let perfection become the enemy of good enough with my dog training. Um, and I think that is largely because of my experience at the shelter where it was just like, yeah, you know, we're not, this dog is not lassie, um, but it's good enough. Um, and I think that was really useful for me. The cons of working in a shelter is it can be really emotionally intense, even if you're working in a no-kill shelter. Um, it's still really, I volunteer at the shelter, um, Humane Society of Western Montana here in uh, Missoula that I volunteer at is limited admission and I think functionally no-kill. Um, it's still really emotionally intense sometimes. There are still cases that are really, really tough. Um and it requires a lot of time to either consistently volunteer, you know, once a week or to switch jobs um, into working at the shelter. You know, I was lucky enough that I wanted to quit my job and I could work at Dumb Friends League when Marissa called me and offered me the job. Um, but, you know, for a lot of people, they wouldn't necessarily want to quit their job and switch over right away to dog training. Um and you're not always well supported. You know, I was lucky enough to get my start at Dumb Friends League, which had a behavior team of, I think, six plus our, a supervisor and a manager. Um, so we had eight people on the behavior team. So I did not have to be jumping in there and doing it all on my own. Um, and then even here at the Humane Society of Western Montana, there are three people on the behavior staff, I think, maybe four. Um, and then myself as one of their, um, their really experienced volunteers. But there are a lot of shelters where you could potentially get hired on as the trainer and be the only person there, which is just not actually that great as a brand new trainer. Um, you wouldn't be ready for that. Um, finally, I don't think volunteering at a shelter or rescue part time was probably would probably be a pretty good thing if you're really green. But um, I think sheltering and rescuing is just a really good way to augment a lot of books and seminars. It's a good way to get that hands-on experience. If you can't build an in-person network another way, or you can't go to seminars or take schooling. Um, so that's kind of what I did. I basically combined books with the shelter and rescue work. Um, but if you just jump in to get the hands-on stuff, you're going to be just as weak as someone who just does books just in the, the other direction. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything to add there? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think that if you're interested in doing something, in a shelter, I would probably make that known. It's been really helpful. Um, I was director of behavior and training at East Bay, and then I was behavior manager at Dumb Friends League. And the the volunteers that were really interested in expanding their their knowledge, their education, their their skills, their tools, they made it very known to me as a manager, and 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 very very politely, very lovely asked me to help support them. And I was so thrilled to do that. Like ever since that woman, Julie committed to having that coffee date with me back in 2006 or something like that, before I decided to change careers, I very much made a point to that. If someone asked me for help, that I'm going to help them mm -hmm. in honor of what Ju Julie did for me. And so, you know, some of these volunteers have, have been really upfront with like, you know, here's what I want to learn. Here's what I want to do. I'm not quite sure. And that has been really helpful for me to uh, support them along their journey. So finding somebody and, and sharing what you're interested in learning, I think is just going to be really helpful for you no matter what. Yeah, um, absolutely. so just, just some thoughts. Yeah, definitely. So, so just to recap our 
continuing education options that we talked about. So the first one was in-person mentoring. So shadowing somebody, developing some sort of community, whether it's online or in-person. And this is just to sort of um, get hands-on experience, but then also talk with other professionals in the industry to gain more education and skills. Um, number two was books. Number three was online classes, and we listed a few that we really like. Number four is programs or schools. Number five is conferences and seminars. So the longer conferences or maybe the two-day seminars just to to get some information. And then lastly is shelter and rescue. So getting some hands-on experience with dogs that could really use the support. So I'm Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward Dog Training in Boulder, Colorado. And you can find me online at pauseandreward.com. And I'm Kayla Fratt, owner of Journey Dog Training in Missoula, Montana. You can find me online at journeydogtraining.com. Before we go, make sure that you guys are subscribed to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. You can find episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com. That's canine all spelled out. You can contact us at hello at canineconvos.com. We love to hear from you. And our theme music is called Funny Song. It's provided royalty-free from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Eady at beheard.org.uk. And our logo is from Whopper, Walker Hooper. You can find his work on Instagram at walkers underscore username. Thanks for listening. Bye.